Do you know that you are fearfully and wonderfully made? Would you believe that? Let's take our Bibles out this morning and let's, uh, let's dig into the Word of God. Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11. And um, today I want to talk to you about modus operandi. And I, uh, you know, these things just come to my mind. I've got, I feel like I've got to explain these things. So uh, the word modus operandi means mode of operation or method of operation. It's just a Latin word. And, you know, what, what the reality is, is everywhere, you know, you go, and, and especially in the work world, you have to figure out what the modus operandi is. I remember when I was in the, the military, when I was in the Navy, and uh, I, had, I was a submarine sailor. You know, you guys, I've told you guys that before. And, uh, but um, after spending three years on a submarine, I was transferred to a training unit. I was going to be uh, uh, teaching uh, at a, a nuclear facility. And uh, it, was, uh, it was a surface nuclear facility. And when I got there, I found out that the way they did things in the submarine service, they don't do that in the, in the surface fleet. And in fact, I tried to do my thing, and they were like, kind of like, well, that's not the way we do it around here. You have to find out how people do it around here. That's the modus operandi because you can't do things the way you've always done them, you have to do them the way everybody else does them. You know, most of the time when we think of modus operandi, we're thinking about crime. This past week, I was out at, um, I was out at the prison visiting with one of our, uh, one of our field ministers. And uh, I was asking him about this. I said, give me, give me, I wanted a good illustration. And, uh, and uh, Jason told me that one time he was, uh, this was before he was sent to prison on this life sentence, that uh, he, was, uh, he was stopped by uh, a police officer that he knew. And, uh, and uh, this guy wanted to see his, uh, the bottom of his shoes. And he said, well, I'm not going to show you the bottom of my shoes. Why do you want to see the bottom of my shoes? And, and so this police officer said, well, I'm, I'm investigating you know, some burglaries that have taken place. And uh, the guy was standing in some mud. I want to see if there's mud on the bottom of your shoes, right? And he was like, well, wait just a minute. You know me. And he said, and, you know, he, he was a criminal at the time, right? He said, you know, that's not my M.O. That's not the way I work. I'm not into petty burglaries. You know, I rob banks and those type of things. And so uh, he said, that's not my M.O. I was, I was watching CSI the other night, and the CSI folks were looking for either a mass murderer or a... Uh, or a, somebody who was robbing bank, whatever he was doing, and they were trying to figure out what was his M.O., what is his modus operandi, how does he operate, how does he think, how does he work? That this M.O. is, is something that it really it works in every realm. Somebody or everybody has an M.O. I was thinking about this and just asking myself this question. I wonder if God has an M.O. You ever thought about that? Does God have a method of doing things or a modus operandi? Heard about a little boy who was trying to figure this out. He was in church in Sunday school, about five years old. And uh, that day in, uh, in Sunday school, they uh, were teaching the creation story, which he was very interested in. And uh, uh, especially the part about how God created uh, man out of the dust of the ground Right? And it helped explain why he, he never could get clean. You know, he was just always dirty. But, but then, uh, you know, God created the woman by taking a rib out of his side. Right? And he was very interested in that. And uh, later on uh, during the week, he, uh, he came into the kitchen. His mom was in there uh, cooking supper or something. And he said, Mom, I've got a pain in my side. I think I'm having a wife. 
Thank you for laughing at that. It took me a while to figure that one out. Uh, from, from the mouth of babes, right? Because he felt like, well, if God did it this way once, that must be the way God operates, right? By the way, let me just pause here and tell you, because I heard a preacher say one time that, uh, you know, we, we know, I mean, the, the difference between men and women, men have one less rib than women. Have you ever heard that? I heard a preacher say, do you know it's not true, by the way? Men and women have the same number of ribs. So just because God took Adam's rib and made a wife doesn't mean, you know, that, well, never mind. So does God have a modus operandi? And if I were to answer that question, I would say, yeah, probably. I would call it grace. You know, when you see God at work in the lives of people like you and me, it's by grace. Praise God. Okay. So just continuing on the thought, what about believers? Do Christians have modes of operation? Do we have, a, do we have an MO or a modus operandi? And you know, just, <laughs> just sitting here looking at everything, I would, um, I would have a tendency to say that yes. Have you ever noticed that we have a tendency to do the same thing over and over again? You know, if we've done it one time, that's what we do, right? I'll just go ahead and tell you that, that if some of us who are here this morning, if we sat in a different pew, I wouldn't, I wouldn't know that you were here. I, I know who's here by looking at it because what happens? We sit in a pew, and, and that becomes our pew, right? Amen? Right? I mean, that's where we're going to sit. And God forbid if somebody comes in and sits in our pew, right? Hey, by the way, if somebody, if you come in and somebody's sitting in your pew, just go ahead and find it. Would you do that? Because I mean, we've had people come and, you know, who maybe are visiting and they sit in the wrong pew, right? And then somebody else stand, hey, you're in my pew, right? Because, I mean, I know we, we don't want to give up our pew because then it'll become their pew. If we let somebody else sit in that pew, then next week they'll want to sit there again because then it'll be their pew, right? You can't sit in a different pew, Okay. Amen. I know. I know what I'm talking about. I'm, I'm a professional here. But I tell you what, if you come in and there's a visitor in particular, if somebody you don't recognize, go ahead and let them sit in your pew. and sit. So would you do me a favor? Because it really, man, it just really kills me when somebody says, well, I'm not going back to that church because those people are unfriendly. I sat in the wrong pew and they told me to get out. We've had that happen, folks, okay? Why? Because that's our M.O., we do it one time, that's the way we operate. But now, seriously, does a believer, a child of God, have a modus operandi? Well, my answer to that would be, I think, it would be faith. Now, I want you to hear this, and because this really is the sermon now. As a child of God, how do we live? In Colossians chapter 2, verse 6, the Apostle Paul wrote, So then, just as you have received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to walk in Him or to live in Him. Well, how did you receive Christ Jesus as Lord? Well, by grace are you saved through what? Faith, right? You come to know Christ. You come to have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ by faith. And so Paul says, so in that same way, walk in him or live in him. That is, if you receive Christ by faith, and if you received him, you did. 
then you continue to live by faith in him. You begin by faith, you live by faith. So what that means is, is as a child of God, faith dictates my actions. Faith determines how I how I think, how I operate, how I live. I live by faith. In fact, we've seen here in this 11th chapter of Hebrews, in, chapter, in verse 6, for example, that without faith it's impossible to please God. And so if I don't operate by faith or if I don't live by faith, God's not happy with me, and I would think we would understand. I mean, I want God to be pleased with me. And the Scripture says that if I don't have faith or if I'm not living by faith, God's not happy. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. Okay, so what exactly is faith? Well, we've seen that in verse 1 of chapter 11. Faith is the reality of what is hoped for and the proof of what is not seen. In other words, it is something tangible. It's real. It's not just an esoteric thing that works out in my mind. I think it like the little boy said, faith is believing what you know ain't so. That's not what faith is. Faith is the reality. It is the proof. It is something real. It is tangible. Okay, if that's the truth, then what does it look like? And that's what I want us to see this morning as we just look at this passage of Scripture in here in Hebrews chapter 11, which we call this great roll call of faith. If you think about all these people, and we've looked at, um, uh, we've looked at Abel, and we've looked at Enoch and his life, and we've looked at Noah and Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph. These are just ordinary people who lived a life of faith. And so they're commended here in the Scripture. And let me just remind us that the 11th chapter of uh, Hebrews here, this roll call of faith doesn't end uh, when you get to the last verse. It continues on in the life of the people of God today who live by faith. Faith is our modus operandi. Faith is the way we operate. Faith is the way we work. And so today we're coming to Moses. And we hear the same refrain again as we begin in verse 23. It says, by faith, Moses. Over and over again, what was unique about these people? What connected them together? Faith, faith, faith. By faith, by faith, by faith. And so here we have Moses. By faith, Moses, after he was born, was hidden by his parents for three months. Now, actually, the faith here is not Moses' faith. It's his parents' faith. Now, folks, hang on to this for a minute because it's going to be very important, okay? By faith, Moses, after he was born, was hidden by his parents for three months because they saw the child was beautiful, underline beautiful there, and they didn't fear the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter and chose to suffer with the people of God rather than to enjoy the fleeting pleasure of sin. For he considered the reproach for the sake of Christ to be greater than wealth, uh, to be greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, since he was looking ahead to the reward. By faith, he, Moses, left Egypt behind, not being afraid of the king's anger, for Moses persevered as one who sees him who is invisible. Remember the definition of faith? So he sees him who is invisible. Verse 28, by faith, he instituted the Passover and the sprinkling of blood so that the destroyer uh, of the firstborn might not touch the Israelites. By faith, they crossed the Red Sea as though they were on dry land. When the Egyptians attempted to do this, they were drowned. And may the Lord 
add his blessing to the reading and to the hearing of his word. Now, beloved, we're looking at the life of one of the most important individuals in all of Scripture, certainly the most important uh, character, if you will, or the the most important man in the Old Testament. In fact, we know that Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. The books Exodus through Deuteronomy are basically uh, a testament of his life or how he led uh, the people of God for uh, the 40 years. It begins with his birth and it continues on right through his death and everything that he did to deliver or to be used by God to deliver Uh, the people of God from bondage. How did he do this? Well, the scripture tells us he did it by faith. He was a man of faith. He lived his life by faith. I mean, if you want to say anything great about Moses, what you're going to say about him is he is a man of faith or he lived by faith. Moses is referred to in the New Testament more than any other any other Old Testament character. In fact, he's listed 82 times in the New Testament. And the Lord Jesus when he was talking to the Pharisees on one occasion in Matthew, or excuse me, in John chapter 5, he said to the Pharisees, if you had believed Moses, you would believe me because he wrote about me. So in other words, by faith, Moses was able to look forward. He saw the Lord Jesus and he wrote about him. On uh, the first Easter Sunday, when, the, uh, when a couple of disciples were on their way from Jerusalem to um, uh, Emmaus, they were on that walk to Emmaus. And uh, they were debating the things that had gone on, and they were sad and everything. And a stranger came up and said, hey, what's going on with you guys? And they said, where have you been? Did you just fall off the turnip truck? I mean, you know, Jesus, we thought he was somebody, and he died. Now they're saying he rose. We're not sure about that. We're just going home. And the Scripture says, or Luke tells us in verse 27 of that 24th chapter of Luke, He said, then Jesus, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted for them the things concerning himself in all the scripture. So you get that? Beginning with Moses. So he went all the way back to Moses and he said, hey, look, look, folks. Moses was talking about the Messiah. Oh, and by the way, I'm the Messiah. So here is Moses' faith put on display for us. And if you will, I'm going to suggest to you that this is the way faith works. In fact, what the writer is trying to teach us here is how our faith is to work as we walk or as we live by faith. And so I'm calling this the modus operandi of faith or faith's modus operandi. And I want to give you just three things here from Moses' experience or Moses' example. And you know, you've got four books of the Bible, Exodus through Deuteronomy, that describe his life. The writer of Hebrews could have picked a whole lot of things. He picked Three examples here, and I want you just to see as examples for us, examples of faith. First thing, here's the modus operandi of faith. Number one, faith holds to God's plan. Faith holds to God's plan. Now, let me just pause here and tell you that one of the things that this means is, is that you understand that God has a purpose and plan, all right? Look down, look back at verse 23. It says, by faith, after he was born, Moses was hidden by his parents for three months. Now, I mentioned that this is actually the faith of Amram and Jochebed. All right, so Amram and Jochebed are the parents of Moses. And it says they hid him in, uh, you know, for three months. And then they had to, um, they had to put him in the, Red, uh, or in the Nile River. Now, let me just remind you, just 
of the background here. When Moses was born, an edict had come from Pharaoh that all the Hebrew boys, baby boys, should be thrown into the Nile River. Now, he did that because... Um, uh, the Hebrews were kind of, they were becoming too many. They were taking over. And so how are we going to deal with this? Let's kill all the baby boys. By the way, just an aside here, there have been three times in history when babies have been killed. When Moses was born, when Jesus was born, and in our day. Interesting. Anyway, edict of Pharaoh, you kill all the baby boys. Well, Amram and Jochebed made the decision that they were not going to do what Pharaoh said to do. Now, they're taking their life in their own hands. They're disobeying the edict of Pharaoh. And if they're caught, they're going to be killed. Not only is their baby going to be killed, but they'll be killed because they disobeyed Pharaoh's law. But they did it. Why? Well, the writer here says they did it by faith. But they give us another little clue here. I want you to look down what it says again in verse 23. It says, because, <clears throat> that is, they did this because they saw that the child was beautiful. Now, you see that? That the child was beautiful. What does that mean? So here's, here's a mama, and she looks at her baby, and she says, now, that's a beautiful baby. Any other mamas ever think that your, your child was the most beautiful one? Any grandparents think that your grandchildren are the, are the most beautiful ones? We're not going to start in on grandparents this morning, all right? But I've never seen an ugly baby. I'll just go ahead and tell you that. Every baby is beautiful. It says here that they decided to take their life in their own hands because their baby was beautiful. Maybe there were other people throwing their babies in the river that were just as beautiful. There must be something going on here. In fact, what's really interesting about this is every time that this story is told... This word beautiful comes up. In fact, if you go back to Exodus chapter 2, in verse 2, it says that when she saw that he was beautiful, she hid him for three months. That's what the writer of Hebrews tells us. It just reminds us of what it says back in Exodus 2. He was a beautiful baby, right? In the seventh chapter of Acts, when Stephen is uh, just about to be martyred, he is allowed to tell the story, right? And so he starts at the beginning and tells the purposes and plans of God for his people. And when he gets to Moses, he mentions this. In fact, it's in verse 20 of Acts chapter 7. It says, and at this time Moses was born and he was beautiful, watch this, in God's sight. He was beautiful in God's sight. It's not just that he was a beautiful baby. But he was beautiful in God's sight. In fact, if you go back and look at that word beautiful, in the Hebrew word that's used all the way back in Exodus 2.2, it is a word that really means uh, special or purposeful. In other words, God had a special purpose and plan. When it says that he was beautiful in God's sight, what that means is, is that God had a purpose and plan for this baby. Now, somehow, someway, Amram and Jochebed knew that. Maybe God told them. I don't know. Maybe through the Holy Spirit, some way he impressed upon him that this baby is going to grow up and he's going to deliver his people. And so they, he was beautiful in their sight because he was beautiful in God's sight. And so by faith, they took their lives in their own hands and disobeyed the edict of Pharaoh because they knew God had a purpose and plan. Now watch this. As, as 
Moses grew, he grew up in his, in his parents' home, right? Because you remember after three months, they put him in that basket in the Nile River. They had to let go of him, but Pharaoh's daughter found him, and then his older sister Miriam was there and said, hey, you need somebody to, to nurse this baby for you? Oh, okay, well, I, I know somebody that'd be willing to do it, a Hebrew mom. And so now Moses grows up in his own home, and he is instructed, he is taught, he is trained by his parents. I wonder what they were teaching and training him. You go down a little bit further here in, uh, in Hebrews 11. It says that, um, that now by faith Moses, when he had grown up, he refused to be called Pharaoh's daughter. And I want you to understand that at some point in his life, after his mother and daddy had raised him to some point, now he goes to live in the palace with Pharaoh's daughter. He is the grandson of Pharaoh, and he grows up. And there's all kinds of evidence in the scripture that not only was, was uh, Moses special, but he was trained in some of the arts there. Uh, he, he was in the administration, if you will. In fact, uh, I was reading something just uh, the other day. It looks like that probably Moses was a diplomat to the Hittite nation. And that probably he spoke that Hittite language because much of the uh, treaties that uh, Egypt was, uh, uh, was negotiating with the Hittite empire at that time, it shows up in the scripture in, in, in Moses' writing. So, so it's very clear that Moses was in Pharaoh's administration. He had the prestige, he had the power, he had the wealth, he had everything. But at some point in his life, in fact, when he's 40 years old, he goes out and he sees an Egyptian abusing a Hebrew. Now, what difference does that make? The Hebrews are slaves. He's an Egyptian now. And yet, Scripture tells us here that he didn't side with the Egyptians. He basically turned his back on all that wealth and prestige and power and everything to side with the Hebrew people. Why did he do that? Evidently because as he was growing up, his mama and daddy were teaching him that God created him incredibly, purposefully, wonderfully, that he was beautiful in the Lord's sight, and God had a purpose and plan for his life. And evidently, he believed it. So when the time came, he turned his back on all that Egyptian stuff, and he went with God's plan because God was at work in his life. It says a little bit later, that, uh, or in verse uh, 24, he refused to be called Pharaoh's daughter, or, or, or the son of Pharaoh's daughter, and he chose to suffer with the people of God rather than enjoy the fleeting uh, uh, wealth, this prestige, this power that that he had. In other words, in other words, he he knew or he, he chose by faith to follow the purposes and plans of God for his life. And he turned his back on all that stuff that he could have had if he had just stayed in the world. What caused him to do that? Well, scripture says it was by faith, because I believe his parents were teaching him, Moses, you are beautiful unto the Lord. And God's got a purpose and plan for your life. And so when the time came, he decided to trust God's plan and follow God's plan and hold to God's plan than to go the ways of the world. And you remember the next day, after he killed that Egyptian, he went back out and he uh, was trying to, uh, uh, to correct some Hebrews that were getting into it. What caused him to do that? What brought him to that place to make him think that he could lead the Hebrew people? I think it was all that purpose and plan of God. And you know what's interesting about this is 
the purposes and plans of God took kind of a strange turn in Moses' life. You know, he, he realized that he was in trouble now, and he ends up leaving Egypt for 40 years, and God puts him out in Midian, which is the backside of nowhere, and he's tending sheep now for 40 years. What was that all about? And I wonder if Amram and Jochebed were kind of like, man, Moses, you messed it up. You blew it. What are you doing with those sheep? I mean, when God has created you to lead people. And yet, as it turns out, 40 years leading sheep was exactly what Moses needed to teach and train him to lead people for 40 years in the wilderness. You know what I mean? In other words, when you, when you come at the end and you look back at Moses' life, you see that even those 40 years in Midian were part and parcel or are part of the purposes and plans of God, and God was working those plans out in Moses' life. And so when it came to the point where the bush burned and Moses stood before God, and God said, I want you to go back and deliver my people, he argued about it because he wasn't sure, but God led him on, and he followed the purposes and plans of God. And all I'm saying is, is what faith does, because the writer tells us this is his faith. What faith does is it holds to God's purposes and plans even when you don't even understand how those things might be working out. Even though you might not see what God is doing, even though you might not be able to to get it all together, we believe that God is working his plans and purposes out. Let me just ask you this question, beloved. Does God have a plan for your life? Does God have a purpose for you or for your children? Are we all just um, accidents or we're just here because of fate and chance? Like some folks out there would like to tell us, no purpose, no plan to it. Or is God... Is God at work in this world, and are you part of that work? Does God have a purpose and plan for you? Beloved, do you know that the Bible teaches that not just these precious little children here created in the image of God, but every one of us, and that God has a purpose and plan? You are a unique creation of God. He created you just the way you are. And I know that it's not... uh, It's not correct grammar, and so I'll go ahead and apologize to all the English teachers. But God don't make no junk. He doesn't. And he doesn't make any mistakes. You are not a mistake. You are not an accident. You were created on purpose by God. And listen, he's got a purpose and plan for you. And it doesn't just end when you get married. And maybe, maybe, you know, you've gotten away from that. Maybe something is has happened and and you strayed just a little bit does the purpose and plans of God end or does God say okay well that's it no what faith does is it keeps bringing us back to him keeps bringing us back to him you know uh, there's a very powerful verse I know many of you know it it's in uh, Jeremiah chapter 29 is verse 11 but but you know the context of Jeremiah 29:11 is Jerusalem has been destroyed and the people of God had been scattered and everybody's saying man it's all over there's nothing left and there's no point just give up 
And through the prophet, God says, I know the plans I have for you. This is the Lord's declaration. This is the Lord's word. Plans for your well-being, not for your disaster. Plans to give you a future and hope. (laughs) Man, that's a powerful promise. When everybody's just saying quit. When everybody's just saying give up. You're too old. It's all over for you. There's nothing left for you. God says, listen, I've got a purpose and plan, and I know what I'm doing in your life, and it's not to harm you. It's to give you hope and a future. Does God have a purpose and plan for your life? And can you trust it? Can I just ask the parents here for just a minute? Does God have a purpose and plan for your children? What about for your grandchildren? What about for those who have strayed? Any parents in here, and you don't have to raise your hand, any parents here say, you know what, we raised this child, and man, we thought, you know, that, and they were saved in the church and everything, but now they don't even claim to believe God. They're off doing their, any, anybody here have any kids that have strayed or anything like that? I wonder if we can trust God with our children. You know, at some point, you have to put your kids in the basket. And stick them in the Nile River. Even though you don't like it. Even though you don't want to. But here's the thing. You can either trust God or you can't. Either he's true to his word or he's not. You know, he did say, hey, train up a child in the way he should go. When he's old, he'll not depart from it. That's a proverb. And it's not a hard and fast promise. It's a general rule. And God says, I tell you what, if you'll trust me. If you'll trust me. I can even take care of that prodigal or that, that grandchild that just don't seem to get it and is going their own way. Now, I'm not saying it don't take a lot of prayer, and I'm not saying it don't take a lot of faith, but it is by faith that we live. Do you understand? What faith does is it holds to the purposes and plans of God, even when you don't understand it, even when you don't see it. That's faith's M.O., all right? Here's the second thing. By the way, let me just give you one more verse. This is my favorite verse in, in all the Bible. I think I've made this kind of my life verse, I guess, Romans 8, 28, where the Apostle Paul wrote, we know that all things work together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his what? Purpose. Right? To his purpose. And either God has a purpose and plan or he doesn't. And if he does, you can trust him. Right? That's what faith does. It holds to the plans of God. All right. Second thing, faith accepts God's deliverance. Faith accepts God's deliverance. Look down at verse 28. It says um, <clears throat> that by faith he instituted the Passover and the sprinkling of the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch the Israelites. Now, again, let's just remind ourselves of what's going on here. So Moses answers the call. He follows God back to Egypt, and he stands before Pharaoh and says, let my people go. Now, the Lord already told him, listen, when you do that, uh, Pharaoh's going to harden his heart. I'm going to harden his heart. He's not going to let him go. So we're going to have to show him. We're going to have to prove to him that he's going to have to let him go, that I'm more powerful than him, right? And so you have these nine plagues that come along, you know, from the blood and the Nile and the frogs and the gnats and the flies and hail and all this other stuff, Right? And each time, Pharaoh's like, no, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to let you go, right? 
And so they get down after that ninth plague, and God tells Moses, hey, I'm going to do one final one, and uh, he's going to let you go this time. I guarantee you. Uh, But here's what's going to happen. I'm going to send my uh, death angel through the land, and every firstborn is going to die. Okay, every firstborn. Moses is kind of like, every firstborn? Every firstborn. Every firstborn of the Egyptians, every firstborn of the Hebrews, every firstborn of everything, unless. And he gave them this specific instruction. He said, now, Moses, I want you to pay attention to this. I want you to tell everybody this. And he actually gave them two weeks to prepare. He said, okay, I want everybody to take a lamb. So every family is going to get a lamb. It's going to become their family pet. You take them inside, clean that lamb up. This lamb is going to live with you for two weeks. And then you're going to kill the lamb. And you're going to cook it, you're going to roast it, and then you're going to eat the whole thing because that next day, y'all are going to leave and you're going to need the, the, the strength. But you take the blood of the lamb and you apply it to the doorpost of the house. So you take that blood and you wipe it on the doorpost. And when the death angel comes, he's going to see the blood and he's going to pass over. Now watch this. The blood had to be shed. Why? Because the blood had to be applied, right? And so Moses went and told all the Israelites, okay, this is what you need to do. Get the lamb, keep the lamb, slay the lamb, apply the blood, roast the lamb, eat it, and we're going to get out of here, all right? But you're not going to get out of here unless the blood is applied. Now, what if somebody says, well, hold on just a minute. That don't make any sense. I mean, that's... Sounds like, number one, a bunch of mumbo-jumbo. And number two, that's a bunch of pagan stuff and the blood and everything else. I mean, I can understand the lamb and everything, but do we have to really kill the lamb? I mean, what if we just talk about it? What if we just preach on the blood? What if we sing songs about power in the blood and all that other stuff? I mean, does the blood really need to be shed, and does the blood need to be applied? Moses said, well, I tell you what. Don't shed the blood and don't apply the blood and let's see what happens. No, he said by faith, the the lamb has to be shed. The lamb has to be slain and the blood has to be applied. And that night, that's exactly what happened. the, The lamb was slain, the blood was applied, and the death angel came through. And everyone who had applied the blood was saved. You know, we saw back in Hebrews chapter 9, without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sin. And I want you to see that this is God's redemption. This is God's way. I'll be honest with you. I don't completely understand it. I would be one of those who would go, well, I mean, does it really? I mean, I don't understand it. But this is what God's, this is the way you're going to be redeemed. This is the way you're going to be delivered from the death angel. The lamb must be slain. And the blood must be applied. And if it doesn't happen that way, there's no redemption. But do you know the Bible teaches that Jesus is the Lamb of God? In fact, in, um, in John chapter 1, there's a part there in John 1 about John the Baptist. He's preaching and teaching. And one day, Jesus comes walking along. And John the Baptist looks at Jesus and he says, there's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He's the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Now watch this. Jesus was the sinless Son of God. As the Lamb of God, He was uh, without blemish. He was without sin. And yet He died. He was crucified for His own sin? No. 
for your sin and for my sin. He died in our place. His blood was shed. Praise God. But, beloved, the blood must be applied. The way of God, the salvation of God, is by the shed blood of Jesus applied to the heart and life of a child of God. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 18 and 19, the Bible says, For you know that you were redeemed from your empty way of life, inherited from your ancestors. That's what you were. That's what you got from them. You were redeemed not with the perishable things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ like that of an unblemished, spotless lamb. He died for you. His blood shed for you. But the blood must be applied. And you might say, well, hold on just a minute. Uh, uh, Why does it have to be that way? I mean, isn't there another way? What if I come to church a whole bunch? What if I give a whole bunch of money to the church even? Wouldn't that be good enough? What if I come and sing all the songs? And, you know, what if I pray all the prayers and do all those things? Wouldn't that be enough? Why is, does it always have to be about the blood? I tell you what, I'll listen to sermons about the blood. I'll sit in church my whole life and let the preacher preach Sunday after Sunday after Sunday about the blood, about the blood, about the blood. I'll read the Bible all about the blood. Won't that be good enough? And God says, no, the blood must be applied. It must be applied to your heart, and it must be applied to your life. How do, how do I apply the blood? How is the blood applied to me? By faith. By faith. And until I put my trust in Jesus, and this is not just mere belief about Jesus dying. This is taking my whole life and laying it on the altar for God. Giving him myself, trusting him with everything about me. What faith does is accepts that this is the only way to get to God. There's no other way except by the blood of Jesus shed, the blood of Jesus applied to my life. What faith does, it's M.O., is it accepts the deliverance of God, not somebody else's deliverance, not some other way, that deliverance of God, and it puts its faith and trust in Jesus for life. This is what faith looks like. One final thing here real quick. Faith waits on God's power. It waits on God's power. Look down at verse 29. It says, by faith they crossed the Red Sea as though they were on dry land. When the Egyptians attempted to do this, they were drowned. Now, you know that after the Passover, after the death angel came through and all those firstborn died, Pharaoh finally had enough and he said, okay, y'all get out of here. Get out of here. And so the Hebrew people led by God, pillar of fire by night, pillar of cloud by day, they were led by God out of Egypt, and he took them in kind of a curious way. In fact, he, he, they, they kind of went one way, and then they turned back, went another way, and they ended up backed up against the Red Sea. And Pharaoh looked at that, and you know, after, he, after they had gone, he said, what did I do? Man, I, I messed, I tell you what, I'm, I'm going to get, I, I'm, I'm, listen, my son died. I'm going to take care of these folks. He called for his chariot. He got his army. They headed off, man. They're, here they come to... Uh, uh, to wipe out 
the Israelites, the Hebrew people. And there are the people of God, and they're backed up against the Red Sea on one side, and here comes Pharaoh's army. There's no hope. There's no escape. There's no way. In fact, God's people are going to Moses and going, hey, man, did they not have enough uh, uh, graveyards in Egypt? You brought us out here to get killed? I mean, we could have died back there. We don't have to come out here and get slaughtered. And you know what Moses said to him? He said, I tell you what, if you folks will be quiet and be still and watch, you're going to see God's salvation. If you'll just watch, you're going to see the salvation of God. Go back and read about that in, uh, uh, in Exodus chapter 14. And then Moses looks at God and said, okay, Lord, <laughs> what are we going to do now? And the Lord says, What's, what do you got in your hand there? He says, well, I got this rod that you gave me all the way back when. God says, I tell you what, why don't you hold that thing up and watch. And Moses holds his rod up, and man, that Red Sea parts. The Scripture says the people of God walked through on dry ground. They were saved, beloved. And then, and they were saved by the power of God. And then, when Pharaoh comes along and he sees that path through the, through the sea, he says, I tell you what, I'm just going to make it myself. And he ends up being drowned with his whole army in the Red Sea. You know, um, what's interesting about this, I was doing a little, little reading about this this past week. There's a lot of Bible scholars, and I'll tell you, there's a lot of Bible scholars out there that don't believe the Bible, don't believe in God, but they're scholars because they study this stuff. And they say that it really wasn't the Red Sea that they went through, that, um, that it was a place called the Reed Sea. And it was only about six inches deep, and they just waded across and that's what, that's what saved them. It wasn't anything miracle about it because there's no such thing as a miracle. So, so they just waded across uh, the Reed Sea. <laughs> Heard a story about another little boy who, was, uh, who learned in Sunday school about, uh, you know, Moses and the Israelites going through the Red Sea, you know, and being saved and, and uh, Pharaoh's army being destroyed. And he went home that day, and his daddy, who was an unbeliever and hadn't gone to church, you know, uh, he was telling his daddy about this. You know, he said, Dad, yeah, the Israelites went through on dry ground and then Pharaoh's army was destroyed. It was a miracle. And Dad said, well, son, you know, uh, scholars have studied this and they know that it wasn't the Red Sea, it was the Reed Sea. And it was only six inches deep. And, and that's how they, they there's nothing like that parted or anything like that. That little boy's eyes got this big and he said, man, it's a greater miracle than I ever knew. Dad said, what are you talking about, son? He said, the whole army of Egypt drowned in only six inches of water. Man, it's a miracle. How in the world did that happen, right? You got to watch what these, uh, <laughs> what these folks say. Hey, beloved, here we go. Child of God, there is an enemy chasing you. There's an enemy after you. Call him the devil, call him Satan, Lucifer, whatever you want to call him demonic powers and forces. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and spiritual wickedness in high places. And this enemy is relentless. He just keeps coming. He keeps coming. He keeps coming. And he's trying to defeat you. He's trying to destroy you. Jesus said the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. That's his MO. That's what he does. And he's after you. It's a physical battle. It's a spiritual battle. And he is relentless. He just keeps coming. He just keeps coming. And there's a whole lot of people that just say, why don't you just go ahead and quit? Give up. You can't make it. 
You can't fight this fight. You're never, going to, you're never going to be anything. You're never going to do anything. Well, the devil just got the victory. And you can't do anything about it. Why don't you just give up and quit? Beloved, your foe is a defeated foe. He was defeated. He lost on Calvary. He was beaten. He has no power. He has no authority. And Jesus says, if you'll trust me, I'll tell you what, if you'll faith me, if you'll walk with me, I'll take care of that foe. In 1 John 5, 4, the Scripture says, uh, I'm going to put this up there, and I can't remember if I corrected it. Because everyone who has been born of God conquers the world. That's everyone born of God. Who's everyone? Raise your hand if you're part of everyone. Yes, everyone. Everyone born of God <coughs> conquers the world. This is the victory that has conquered the world. Our faith. Faith is the victory. This is why faith is the MO of a child of God. What are you going to do in this world when, when the forces of darkness and, and the junk and the garbage is dumped on you in this world? How are you going to make it? How are you going to win? Only by faith. Faith is the victory. But watch this. Sometimes you got to wait on the Lord. There were the Israelites standing by the Red Sea, and they saw the enemy coming that way, and they saw no escape that way, and there was no way out of this. And you know what? If they had just given up like everybody said, if they had just gone back and let's just go ahead and let him kill us, or let's go back to Egypt and we'll die there, you know what? They wouldn't have seen anything. They waited on the Lord, and the rod was held up, and the Red Sea parted, and they were delivered by the power of God. But sometimes you just have to wait. By faith, faith causes you to stand there and just say, okay, Lord, you told me to stand. I know you've got a purpose. I know you've got a promise. I know you're working this thing out. And I tell you what I'm going to do. I don't see any way, but I'm going to trust you. I'm going to trust you. That is the MO of faith. It just waits on God's power and it receives it. So beloved, this is the way faith works. It holds on to his promise. It accepts his deliverance, his deliverance, and it waits on his power. So, here's the question. What does your faith do? How's your faith working out these, these days? <laughs> Maybe you're here today and you'd say, well, you know what? I've been struggling with this very thing. I've got a weak faith. You know what? It don't take but just a little faith. Jesus said, you can move mountains with just a mustard-sized seed faith. A mu mustard-seed-sized faith. That's all you got. That's enough. You see, faith really is the victory. And you know, when you call on the Lord, you shall be saved. Maybe you're sitting here this morning, you don't have any faith. I mean, everything we've been talking about makes absolutely no sense to you. And you're not exactly sure how you're going to make it. I want to tell you, beloved, listen to me now. Jesus died for you. He does have a purpose and plan for your life. And he'll work it out for your good and his glory if you'll let him. But you're going to have to give him your life. How do I do that? I put my faith in Jesus I give him my life and if you've never trusted Christ as your Savior and Lord today is the day of salvation the call of the scripture the call of God today is faith put your faith in Jesus he's never short he's never late he's always faithful and you can trust him father today I want to thank you that that faith 
is our victory and that in Jesus there's victory. Lord, I pray that as your grace flows freely through this place, as you work in this place right now by your grace, Lord, that our faith might match it or join it and that in that we might be saved, we might be healed, we might be restored, we might... Lord, be able to let go and stand there. God, as you work today, let, it, let our faith come shining through. Lord, I pray in Jesus' name.